I'm Mark Hennick. This is So-Called Normal. Hey folks, welcome to So-Called Normal. Today on the show, we have my friend Steph Guthrie. Steph and I met each other through TEDx Toronto way back in 2013. Uh, I believe she went on stage right before me or right after, something like that. Anyway, we through the TEDx Toronto um, setup, I didn't fully appreciate when I was selected to do my own, uh, and, and Steph experienced this with me, uh, how intensive the process was for months of, uh, of writing the talks, of revising the talks, of getting coaching, of going to voice coaching and stage presence stuff and rehearsals and all this. So it was definitely one of the the more nerve-wracking experiences of my speaking career, especially early on in the formal stage. But I shared that with Steph and and so many great others. We had Mark Bowden on the show uh, a couple of weeks ago, and and it was the same for him. He he was a a colleague of mine that, that, that I met through TEDx Toronto. So one of the things that I noticed, though, when I first met Steph through that, uh, was how routinely she gets targeted uh, by online trolling and, and harassment. So we get into that in this episode. That was part of what her TEDx talk was about. Don't This idea that you shouldn't feed the trolls, uh, they should leave them alone. And, and she challenges that directly because Steph is uh, a badass. She's a filmmaker, a, a film programmer, an educational consultant. Uh, she worked on the feature documentary, A Better Man. Uh, she uh, which has been covered by The New Yorker and BuzzFeed, and it's won a bunch of awards, so go check that out. She's a co-founder of Drunk Feminist Films. <laughs> I haven't been to one, uh, but I would love to go to one uh, if I'd be welcome to do that, because you know Steph is just such a, a powerful advocate for feminism. Uh, and we really get into that. We get into her own story, and we get into the intersection uh, between feminism, between the men's rights activist movement and, and all that stuff, uh, and mental health and how it impacts her. Uh, so I think you'll really enjoy the show. I had a lot of fun uh, talking to her. I think this is an important conversation that we have. Uh, so please let me know uh, afterward via social media and otherwise. Subscribe on on Apple Podcasts and let me know via social media what you think. I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on this one. So that said, here's my conversation with Steph Guthrie on So-Called Normal. So I, I loved your uh, your TEDx talk. I thought it was wonderful. Thank you. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about... Uh, Oh, about the talk, uh, sure. but also what brought you to that point, you know, what that process was like. Right. So, um, you know, uh, the previous year, uh, so in 2012, um, I had confronted a man who made a video game that was essentially inviting the user to uh, punch in the face a feminist who they didn't like. Mm. And uh, it was a specific woman. I just don't want to name her because, you know. She's had enough to deal yeah, with. Sure, but uh, sure. yeah, so um, so the guy who had made the video game, he published it uh, on a like with a username that was his own name. Um, and I was a heavy user of Twitter, so I wanted I was curious if he had a Twitter account. Mm-hmm. Um, and I looked him up and he did. So I tweeted at him or I well, I tagged him in a tweet to notify those who followed me that um, this was the man who had made the uh, feminist face punch game. And it became a thing. I don't know. <laughs> um, it got, you know, I, I, I uh, encouraged people to retweet. Uh, and so it kind of blew up. And then, um, of course, there was like a backlash from, uh, you know, misogynists who supported this guy. And uh, um, so that I think was, uh, I, I, I was invited to do a talk because of that experience. And my talk focused on, um, Basically, the talk the talk was called the problem with don't feed the trolls mm. and don't feed the trolls is an expression that basically means um, if you think someone's a troll, don't engage with them because it's only going to encourage them. Um, and troll in this context is often used just like as another way of saying like a bigot. You know, mm. if someone's saying something misogynist or racist or transphobic, like don't engage with them. And, you know, you're only going to encourage them. And I, I, um, I really disagreed with that philosophy. And so my talk was about how uh, it's only through actually like engaging these viewpoints that we're going to bring about change. 
I mean, that was five years ago, and I still agree with like some of the basic tenets of that talk. But obviously, you know, our views change as we move sure, forward I was in life. Ask you that, yeah. Yeah, well, and I think one of the things that has changed for me, I don't think that it's. I I don't think as much as I did in 2013 that it's super useful to engage total strangers on the internet. I do think that we need to engage when people who are part of our communities and people who uh, are our friends or our colleagues or our family members or acquaintances um, say bigoted things or mm-hmm. do bigoted things. Um, but when it's a stranger, I guess I guess where I've come around to through much experience is realizing that strangers are not likely to um, listen to you and you're actually a lot of the time just going to like reinforce their mentality that like uh, they're a martyr to their cause you know making them dig into the issue exactly I've read that about um, anti-vaxxers as well people who who really are very vocal that vaccines cause autism and all kinds of things that have been (laughs) disproven (laughs) by the science Mm. Um, but there was a, a really interesting article that I read that said that fighting with them didn't actually change their opinion actually it made them embed their opinion further because they felt like you're saying that they had to to defend it that they they doubled down yeah no made. you got to protect the castle like i think people really um tend to dig their heels in when they're when they're challenged right. and uh and i think especially when that i think it's different when the challenge is coming from someone you know mm-hmm. and someone you have some level of relationship with some level of mutual respect and and you know, someone you like, I think you're a lot more likely to entertain their viewpoint, you know, Um, because you have some shared, some common ground. Well, and when you did that talk, it was also, I think, it was before, at least in a popular sense, uh, Cambridge Analytica, Russian trolls, bots. It was you know, a different the, time. It was a, a different time. It time. was a simpler time. <laughs> 2013, it was a simpler oh, time. Uh, but, you know, now <laughs> it, it, it's a... Uh, it's a profession. It's a whole movement, this idea that trolling uh, in a way that it was only really nascent, I think, at the time then. Yeah. Well, and there there's certainly lots of spaces for them to organize and to find validation for their viewpoints online. Mm. Right. And so that makes it uh, makes those communities grow and makes the viewpoints themselves become more extreme over time because mm. those uh, spaces where they can organize allow those communities to kind of continuously grow and foment. Right. I often remark, but especially lately, and it seems to be getting more common, in U.S. politics in particular, but as as U.S. politics always do, are bleeding over into Canada, how people can just invent their own reality, uh, especially political leaders and, and other, other uh, leaders in public discourse, uh, and others just believe it, despite the fact that there's overwhelming evidence to, mm-hmm. to the contrary, you know, and, and, and just recently this has been coming out. So, you know, that seems to be based on this idea that uh, we start with belief first, uh, and just because we believe it, it's true, rather than starting with truth first and then coming around to the belief in that truth. And and that's kind of kind of what you're saying, I think, in in some ways that people believe that everything they believe is true, uh, despite the fact that it may not be. Nobody nobody likes to be criticized, and right. I think when our beliefs are challenged, it feels like. A critique, right? Well, it's part of our identity, sure. it seems. So it seems like we're somebody's attacking our identity. Yeah, yeah. It's from the outside. It seems like a core part of your identity. And correct me if this is wrong. Uh, is feminism? It seems like a. a oh yeah. Your one of your main bags. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. What does that mean to you? What does feminism mean? Ah, uh, wow. What a big question. I guess. Um, I mean, really, it it just means that uh, that I think that. People of all genders should have um, should be treated with equal degrees of respect and uh, should experience equal uh, outcomes. Mm. Yeah, and it, it, I don't think it's just uh, about gender either. And that's something mm. also that you know, just over time, I've learned a lot through the conversations that I've had. And five years ago, I think my feminism wasn't as uh, aware of like the of the challenges that other marginalized groups experience and and over time i've i've i you know i mean i'm still learning we're all always learning but i would say certainly at this point my feminism is is integrated into like a broader vision of social justice for for everybody people of all races um people of all gender identities uh ability disability um you mentioned the men's rights uh folks earlier 
where where does that broadening feminism are they still as frustrating for you uh, and and in some cases almost traumatic uh, for many people uh, as they once were you know this this whole not all men thing or men too or whatever the hell oh it yeah is that they say. no I think they're I think they're just as I think they're more vicious now and mm. and I think that the links between men's rights and in particular white supremacy have really become clearer in the last few years you know and and people are really talking about that now mm. right like about how a lot of these mass shooters who are like anti-immigrant anti-refugee uh, anti-muslim uh, anti anti like anti-semite they often also have a history of like domestic violence against a girlfriend or a partner, mm-hmm. right? So there's been some investigations into the ways that these online extremist communities use young men's sexual frustration as a way to kind of indoctrinate them mm-hmm. into uh, even more extreme like white supremacist views and mm-hmm. like incel views, uh, quote unquote. Yeah, we saw that certainly with the uh, Toronto van attack and, mm-hmm. and a number of other attacks recently, it seems. Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, I mostly stay out of that stuff now because I'm mm-hmm. not, uh, I still use social media, but it's very like, it's pretty much just private and focused on yeah. people I actually know in real life now. Like I don't, I don't use Twitter anymore. Um, and that was sort of the main vector through which people like that would like would yeah, access me. Sure. And, and we chatted a bit about this offline already that you, it seems to me, m- more than most other people, uh, becomes a target for for these people. You say things that that a, a, a middle aged white male could say uh, and nobody would even notice. <laughs> but for some reason, when you say it or, or even more broadly, not just to make it personal, but when a feminist says it, a prominent sure. feminist such as yourself, uh, they become a target in in the most vicious ways I think that I've ever seen. Why? What's happening? How have you dealt with that? I mean, I uh, I think that I think that a lot of it is just that they, uh, um, a young woman, you know, speaking in a very like forthright and like authoritative way right. on this kind of issue is just really out of sync with how they think women should be, right? Docile. Yeah. And, yeah. Whereas if a middle-aged, you know, white man articulates it, it's like very much in line with how they think a middle-aged white man should behave. So right. it's not as, it doesn't like shock their belief system in the same way, you know? Um, and how do I deal with it? I don't know. God, I like make sarcastic jokes about them to my friends. <laughs> like, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's really... Uh, a lot, honestly, a lot of how I've dealt with um, certainly the attacks that I've experienced has been through sardonic humor. Mm-hmm. Um, but interestingly, I've really pulled back from that since um, my trial, my criminal mm-hmm. harassment trial. Um, Can you talk just a little bit about yeah, what that was? Totally. So, um, so basically, I was a complainant in uh, a criminal harassment trial where the communication in question took place on Twitter. And uh, it was it was a precedent setting case. And it was um, relatively early in this whole, I don't know, culture wars thing that people, uh, you know, it was before Gamergate, but like kind of just before Gamergate. Mm -hmm. And so it was a bit of like a harbinger for uh, because the person who uh, was the defendant to the case was, you know, espousing viewpoints that were sort of men's rightsy. And I was a feminist. It became this real kind of uh, early flashpoint in that whole evolving mess. You know, Christy Blatchford from the National Post was one of the only journalists who she might have even been the only journalist who was consistently covering it. Like one a, a journalist from a different outlet would come in for like one day at court. Mm-hmm. But Christy was the one who was coming in and writing about it regularly. And she, uh, you know, I mean, anyone who's read her work uh, has a sense of what her views on things like feminism and men's rights are. She's very anti-feminist and very pro-men. And uh, she wrote a piece around the time of closing arguments that was, it seemed like SEO, like targeted to inflame the men's rights community. I think the headline was something like a harassment trial could have grave implications for freedom of speech. Right. Um, And that was like a huge, it continues to be a huge, you know, uh, talking point for those circles. And um, that piece ended up blowing up internationally. So, you know, Alex Jones and Infowars wrote about it. Really? Breitbart, uh, Milo Yiannopoulos did like a 
Twitter chat about my case with Lauren Southern from The Rebel, um, who started to come out and cover the case as well. And yeah, and so at that point, my Twitter account became a bit of an unlivable situation, right? Like, um, there was no publication ban in the case. So uh, my identity was known in, and was mentioned in all the coverage. And some of the coverage, uh, some of the journalists who came out to cover it actually tagged me in their mm. in their tweets from the courtroom. Uh, thank you, guy from the Toronto Star, Liam Devlin Casey, for tagging me in your tweets. Anyway, sorry. I'm mm. just like, obviously have a lot of anger still in me about how journalists treated the situation. So, um, and in fact, in a way that was, <laughs> you know, the way that the media treated me and certainly the way that the defense attorney treated me was, I would say, much more traumatic with much more long-term impact than my interactions with the defendant ever were, right? right, right. Um so the reason that I brought up um, sardonic humor and how that has kind of changed for me. Um, so I used to be, and I still have a pretty like sarcastic sense of humor. I don't know. That's just sort of how I am. Um, but uh, during the trial, the defense attorney would question me about sarcastic jokes that I had made on Twitter or on Instagram. And he would interpret just the most like over the top meaning for it. So I think I kind of got to a point where I was like, you know what? Every little thing that I say is going to get picked apart and it's going to be interpreted in the mo- in the worst possible light. So I'm just going to start saying exactly what I mean and being extremely earnest and never <laughs> providing uh, any ambiguity that can be used mm. against me. Mm. I've become very like well, it's starting to loosen up for me a bit now, but for a few years I was so careful about anything that I said. Um, because of not wanting to be dragged through the coals again like that? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Even though I wasn't technically on trial anymore, you know, that stuff just really gets embedded in your psyche. You know, when you are being questioned about every little thing that you've ever tweeted, you uh, you start to kind of send all your thoughts to like a committee in your brain before you put them out publicly. Mm-hmm. It's like you have an internal like PR advisor who's like, all right, hold on, Lev, let's let's put this through the ringer. What are all the different ways that someone could interpret this? And let's make sure that there's no, you know, question or <sighs> yeah. It's very exhausting. It was very exhausting. And I'm only now kind of starting to pull myself out of that and be a bit freer. I hope that nobody ever puts my tweets on trial. Mm, my me, God. Too. <laughs> me too. Me you too. Know. But you, your tweets are great. If anyone ever puts your tweets on trial, I'll be I, first in line to... I believe that I tweeted anything. about Ryan Reynolds' butt not too long ago. <laughs> <laughs> I support that. <laughs> you know, what, what kind of impact do you think that... Uh, other young women feminists, or, or or not even women, you know, certainly um, young men or anybody speaking out uh, about these kinds of issues, what kind of impact do you think that that would have had on them watching your trial? Well, that was something that worried me intensely at the time and still does, you know? I think, um, well, I certainly think that anyone who was watching my trial and who's had someone, you know, persistently engaging with them online in ways that they're not comfortable with, I think anyone who's experiencing that and who saw what happened to me would be very unlikely Mm. to think that the court system would be a place where they could find justice for that. Right. I mean, I was, (laughs) I was so fortunate in many ways. Right. Because, uh, you know, I mean, like the cops listened to me when I went in to make a report and they arrested the guy and the crown decided to press charges. Um, There are a lot of, there are a lot of people who might have been in my position who would never have even gotten that far, mm-hmm. um, you know, because uh, they're black or they're trans or they're a sex worker or whatever it might be. They either wouldn't feel comfortable going to the police or they wouldn't be taken seriously if they did. You know, I'm kind of like the ideal victim in that sense, right? Because mm-hmm. I'm white. I'm middle class. I have, you know, a graduate education. Um, I'm very well versed in like how to navigate a system like the court system, you know, like I I'm 
better equipped to do that than a lot of people. So it was a huge nightmare for me. And I think anyone watching it who doesn't have the privileges that I have would just be like, wow, well, if that's what happened to her, you know. And you said that it was a precedent setting case. So what precedent do you think it set? I mean, I'm not a lawyer, so I wouldn't, I guess I should, I, I should, when I say precedent setting, I, I guess I just mean there hadn't been a case like right. that before. Sure. But I mean, um, online bullying and harassment is very, you know, very much in the media ever since, well, even before Amanda Todd uh, died by suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, th- th- this is something that people talk a lot about. So uh, it sounds like uh, that your experience was pretty traumatic and that it was yeah. discouraging, would discourage others to ask for help. Yeah, for sure. Well, I I know that, you know, so the judge in my case, uh, he found that I was harassed, but that it did not reach a criminal threshold. Mm. And the reason for that is that for it to reach a criminal threshold, um, the complainant has to fear for their safety. And the the wording of the law is that it, they need to have a reasonable fear mm. for their safety. So you can imagine the difference between how I might interpret a reasonable fear and how like an older white male judge who's like never used Twitter might right. interpret what is a reasonable fear. And... Uh, I know that the defense attorney, um, the like press conference or whatever that he did after the case, he made a lot of comments. And this was consistent, you know, throughout the case, he made a lot of comments like this. But basically, and Christy Blatchford picked it up and used it in every one of her columns. But basically, the argument was he never um, explicitly threatened you and he never said anything sexual to you, although he did offer me rides to like northern Ontario to go away with him for a weekend and like weird stuff like that, you know, (laughs) but because there was never anything overtly sexual and because there was never anything overtly threatening, you know, this was just the drum that the defense attorney banged over and over. And he made a comment after the verdict was rendered. And of course, the guy was acquitted where he basically said that now people don't need to worry that they're going to be charged with harassment if they uh, if they haven't. threatened or sexually harassed somebody. And I don't know that that is actually the legal precedent that Mm. was set. But the fact that he like made those comments and that they were covered in the media, like that's a huge chill factor for anyone who's reading it. Right. So (sighs) another um, high profile case that, as far as I know, didn't involve you in any way uh, was Gian Gomeshi uh, and his uh, female uh, lawyer, Marie uh, Heinen, I believe is is pronounced. Yeah. that seemed like a challenging uh, dynamic for for many people in the social justice world and the feminism movement to have a uh, such a prominent, successful woman defending a man uh, who uh, was al- alleged or or did uh, mm-hmm. do uh, such awful things to people. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that, if any? Well, you know, I guess I think patriarchy is like patriarchy is not men. Patriarchy Mm. is a set of ideas, right? And women can be agents of patriarchy as well as men. Um, Women are maybe, because we experience the the violence of patriarchy more acutely, Mm. we're we're maybe um, less likely to be agents of the patriarchy than men. But I I think it's, I know plenty of women who you know, who uh, have done maybe not comparable things like sure. defend a very high profile uh, man accused of sexual assault. But um, d- certainly she's not unique, I guess, is what I'm trying to okay. say. Uh, I mean, that's that's, um, I think, part of the assault on feminism from the outside. But I don't know if this is true within your world, but it's certainly true within the mental health space where I do a lot of uh, my work. And th- there's certainly lots of intersectionality there as well, all, all kinds. But um do you think that everybody uh, working either professionally or, or, or actively, I think everybody's a feminist in some way, but people who are actually very active in that, in this space as you are, is everybody helpful? Is it great that everybody is speaking up in some way? Or are there people that sometimes you say, I get where you're coming from, but maybe that's not so helpful? Oh, for sure. Well, I yeah, I don't agree, you know, with every feminist under the sun and and. I think, but too. but there's there's you know and, and uh, again to relate it back to the mental health space, there's a very strong argument for the case that at least they're saying something, at least they're speaking up, at least they're active in the conversation. Sure, you know I think I think it's better that's better than than not because I think through dialogue is how we um, that's how we grow, that's how our values uh, 
become more refined and mm. more aligned. And I think, um, you know, I have definitely, uh, especially in my early uh, Twitter days, you know, would sometimes tweet incredibly like self-righteous and like pretty um, blunt, you know, opinions about things. And and I was fortunate that there were other people in my online universe who who uh, who engaged with with those kinds of tweets and who uh, helped me understand um, what was missing from my viewpoint mm. or, um, you know, like I remember one time I, I tweeted, I forget what the impetus was, but it was about missing and murdered indigenous women. And I tweeted something like, and this was when Stephen Harper was still in power. I think it was actually, it was right after he had said that the missing and murdered indigenous women inquiry issue was not on his radar. And, uh, and I was angry about that as lots of people were. And I was tweeting, um, you know, like this group wants an inquiry and that group wants an inquiry and, and literally everyone wants an inquiry except Stephen Harper. And I actually had like a couple of, you know, uh, feminists, some indigenous and some not who were like, actually, not everyone does. And there are like some indigenous women and organizers who think that we already have all the answers that an inquiry would deliver through previous inquiries, through academic research, through yada, yada, yada. And an inquiry is just a way to like direct more resources to like hemming and hawing about the problem rather than solving it. Right. Which is a totally valid sure. viewpoint that I yeah. hadn't considered and uh, and that I was excluding um, by saying literally everyone wants an inquiry and I'm a settler. Like, what the heck do I know about mm. any of this? Right. Um, so anyway, I, th I do think that it's good for people to like speak up and mm. and learn from the people who they have dialogue with. But I definitely. Yeah. I mean, sometimes sometimes uh, the things that that people say, it's like I don't think it's going to be necessarily helpful in like resolving the issues that we're all tackling or trying to tackle. But I also think that sometimes people's goals when they're expressing themselves aren't always to like help or to resolve the mm. situation. Sometimes, especially people who are like personally impacted by whatever the issue is that's under discussion, people who are marginalized mm -hmm. in that way have like a lot of pain and anger. Mm. You know, I mean, you heard me uh, making relate. some angry comments earlier, right? Like uh, sometimes you're just venting your frustration yeah. and and that can be helpful too in a way right like it's maybe not helpful to others but it can be helpful to you right so uh, yeah there's kind of uh, people ask me especially young people a lot how to get involved in mental health advocacy and raising awareness and things like that and one of the first things and they never like it but one of, <laughs> one, of, one of the first things that i often recommend is to to really focus in on yourself uh yeah. that you can't while, yes, it's good to recover out loud, to share your experience, mm -hmm. to, to be open about it, um, there's an old saying in, in, uh, in um, psychotherapy that you have to know why you're sharing. Are you sharing for you or are you sharing for everybody else? Uh, and if you're sharing for you, then, you know, maybe you need to do some more inner work. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's good advice, you know, like to well, to, to focus on yourself and get really clear on how you feel about this issue, how it impacts you, mm. what your social location is in relation to the issue. Yeah. And I, I can definitely relate to some of those young people. Right. Like I uh, who want to get involved with advocacy, like I was super excited to get involved with advocacy. And, you know, I have. I have always had a lot of strong opinions, if you can, if you can believe it. <laughs> really? Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And, you know, I think one of the things that I've realized in the last couple of years is that I think, um, you know, and this is so basic now that I like <laughs> saying it in hindsight, uh, I feel silly that I didn't realize this before. But I think a lot of the reason that I gravitated toward, you know, feminist advocacy was, um because of my own pain that sure. I've experienced, you know, I was, I had an abusive boyfriend. I experienced, uh, you know, I experienced some dynamics of abuse in my childhood home. Mm. Um, and I, uh, I was raped. Um, this was all, you know, not even in relation to like the criminal harassment trial that I went through, but, um, and I think, so I think that I, I wanted to like speak out about these issues as a way of trying to like, I'm a very like, I'm a real workaholic. And I think my way of like dealing with pain at that time was like, well, I want to solve this situation. 
And I'm like not in touch with my abusive ex anymore. And I'm certainly not in touch with the guy who raped me and like whatever. So it's like I can't resolve them and what they did to me, but I can try and resolve the issues that led to them treating me the way that they did. And uh, and I think that I, I felt like advocacy and, and trying to push for systemic solutions to these problems was like a way of healing my own pain. But I was not really conscious of that. Right. And so it wasn't healing for me at all. All I was doing was like deferring my pain, basically. Projecting it out onto the world. Yeah. And, you know, it's um, and that was even to some extent the case with um, A Better Man, which is a wonderful uh, film that I had the absolute privilege and honor of working on. Can you tell me more about that, too? Sure. So it's a documentary uh, that follows conversations between the director, uh, Atia Khan, and the man who abused her when they were in a relationship together about 25 years ago. And uh, it's a really, it's obviously a very heavy film, um, but an incredibly uh, powerful one. It's their story. It's not meant as like a prescription for how these situations should or shouldn't be dealt with. Um, But in their very particular case, the man who abused Atia is beginning to take some steps toward trying to take responsibility for what he did to her. And uh, in doing so, you know, Atia being able to kind of witness that it's it's been a rather healing experience for her. Right. Mm. So. um, And uh, my role with the film was uh, mostly creating the educational materials around it to get people talking about it. So I created a bunch of different discussion kits, including one specifically for like groups of men to watch the film and discuss Mm -hmm. it together. Um, I we also created like a high school learning kit to go with the film uh, with the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. And uh, and then I also co-directed an interactive companion to the piece that interviews six different men who've used violence against a partner. Well, honestly, working on that interactive piece was like a huge emotional journey for me Mm -hmm. um, because what I heard in these interviews was these men describing the thing. You know, we had them we we posed questions to them that we had crowdsourced from women who've experienced violence. If you could ask the person who hurt you anything and know that you would get an honest answer, what would you ask them? Mm -hmm. So we posed those questions to these guys. And what I heard in these guys describing what they had done to their partners and former partners, I heard these guys quite often describing things that had been done to me, mm-hmm. but that I had always been blamed for by the person who was doing them. Um, I heard these guys describing those very same actions as abuse, right? And even though it wasn't hearing the person who had done those things to me saying what I did to you was abuse, it was um, so validating to like to hear somebody acknowledge you know that getting very close to someone's face and screaming at them is abuse Mm. and punching a wall is abuse and uh so anyway i think that i gravitated toward working on this film also because i i i agree and I agree with Atia that if we want to end violence against women, we have to engage with the people who are using violence. We can't just like, of course, we need to like protect women and, uh, you know, protect people who've experienced violence. But that is not a preventative approach. That's a reactive approach. And it's necessary. But we also need to focus on prevention. And yes, part of prevention is like educating young people about healthy relationships. But part of it is also engaging with people who are using violence Mm -hmm. and helping to teach them how not to do that and how to take responsibility for it. So I think this was just, I'm, I'm, I, I say this not at all as a disparagement of the project or my choice to work on it, but I think that my choice to work on it was rooted in my desire to like heal my own pain, but again, by distracting myself from it and, and focusing on the larger, the larger issue. And uh, within the last um, six months, I had a conversation with my therapist, you know, because I was considering starting another creative project that was also focused on men who've used violence and taking responsibility. And I was really excited about it. It was a virtual reality idea. And I was I, I still think it's a great idea and I might do it someday or someone else might do it before I get to it. But I ended up deciding with my therapist, you know, I think I might be done focusing on these guys for a while. I think it might be time to just focus on us 
And at first I thought I meant us as in survivors in general. Mm -hmm. But I realized after that I meant me, the various versions of me who've experienced these things, right? Um, yeah. So I think I've, I've really, I've turned inward in the last, certainly in the last year. And, uh, you don't obviously have to answer this if it's, if it's too close, but, um, has, does the man who raped you, if it was a man, uh, know that he raped you? Uh, yeah. yeah. I actually had a really, I had a really powerful experience actually, uh, relating to that guy. So it was a man. He had white dreads, which really added insult to injury. Um, sorry, I do have to make sardonic <laughs> jokes sometimes about the horrible things That's that have happened to me. Fine. What do you do? Yeah, you do whatever you have to do. You do whatever you have to do. So, um, you know, so uh, this was a situation where I was like blackout drunk at a bar mm -hmm. and like couldn't hold myself up. I was falling. I had fallen multiple times that night. And my friends like took their eyes off me for literally like, like when I spoke with my friend the next day, he was like, I felt like I turned my back for two seconds and he had swept you out the door, put me into a car. He was sober. Um, he drove us back to my apartment. And uh, I think he did think that the sex was consensual because we have really fucked up ideas of uh, consent in our culture. And uh, so... Um, I woke up the next morning and I rolled over and I was like, who is this guy? What are you doing? Like, what just happened? And he didn't use a condom and he gave me um, a curable sexually transmitted infection. Um, and uh, so a few weeks later, I was at the same bar where he had found me. Ottawa has like a couple of bars that people like me want to go to. So um, I ran into him at that bar. It was really like I was there with a couple of friends um, who knew what had happened to me. And one of them was in the army and one of his army buddies was there and his army buddy comes over and is chatting with us. And then uh, his buddy is like, hey, I've got this friend I want you to meet and who should turn around but my rapist. Oh, wow. um, and I like I like completely froze and uh, like I don't really remember the conversation for a couple seconds and then I turned to my friend and I was like that's the guy who raped me and uh he was my rapist is standing there with his hand out to like shake my friend's hand and my friend like I felt him just like stiffen completely and he's like I can't shake that fucking guy's hand and uh and then the guy is just standing there did he recognize you Who's to say? Um, but he's looking at me with this look in his face of like, who, me? I'm, I could never do any. I don't understand why this guy's upset with me. And I, just that look of like, who, me? Rage just like exploded out of my body. And I shoved him up against a garage door that was nearby. And I was just like, you know, is it okay for me to swear on this podcast? Yeah, go for it. Well, I was like, so shoved him up against the garage door and I was like saying the word fuck a lot. Like, you fucking raped me, you fucking asshole. You gave me fucking chlamydia. And like, um, you know, and shoving him up against this garage door. And some people will say that it's not appropriate for me to use violence. But this was not the kind of violence that's going to like cause any kind of harm to somebody. And I'm sorry, but what he did to me was violence. And... I really felt my rage like rippling through my limbs as I shoved him up against the garage door, which sounds like a weird thing to say, but it it really felt like I was taking that energy that he had literally put inside my body that I didn't ask for. And I was saying, this isn't mine. You have to take it now. You take mm. it now. And there was a reciprocity to that, that, um, like, that was the one – I don't feel that I have suffered long-term trauma from that experience, and I firmly believe that it was because I had that opportunity sure. to confront him, you know? Every other person who's done me harm, I I never got anything like that. And I don't think – I don't think that it was the – 
I don't think that it was the violent nature of my body touching his. I think it was simply like the physical nature of it. It was the transference of energy Mm -hmm. that was so healing. Um, And my friends stood up for me too, right? And that was huge. Um, Mm -hmm. Your friends don't always stand up for you, unfortunately. I was very lucky. The uh, through your work on the film and through this experience, for sure, um, you know, you hear a lot now, especially with so many prominent men and celebrities uh, um, in the Me Too movement. Uh, but now some of the men are starting to come back. Louis C.K. and Kevin Spacey and a number of others. Mm-hmm. Um, the immediate justified reaction, I think, is, well, you can't just go away for a couple of months or a year and then come back and everybody will forgive you. Yeah. Uh, So through what you've learned through your own personal experiences and through the film, what do people, men or women or whoever else uh, who have used violence or or who have uh, abused others, what do they what's what should they do in order to make that right? Well, I think it's actually kind of a callback to what you said earlier about, like, instead of focusing on being an advocate and making public statements, you need to really focus on yourself for a while and not just on yourself. Actually, you could probably stand to focus a bit less on yourself and more on the people who you hurt. And, you know, it's not going to be possible for uh, many of these people to engage directly with the people that they hurt. Those people may not want contact with them, but they need to try and think about what it must be like to be this person and to think like to really grapple with like, what you did and and not just a form apology written no, by your publicist. No, exactly. And this is the problem is that, you know, our understanding of this issue is now so firmly built on how celebrities have responded to this issue and of course they're responding in a very PR driven way. And I mean the reality unfortunately is that even when people on a smaller scale do these kinds of things, that is often, you know, especially with social media, you see lots of like non-apology Facebook posts where people right. are like I've heard some rumors that I have engaged in conduct that people feel is not, you know, just this really like Distance. weasel words, yeah, yeah. you know, and I've seen a lot of that and I've informally mediated some situations involving that kind of thing. And the problem is that most of the time, most of the time, and this is sad to say, but most of the time these guys are really just focused on rehabilitating their reputations. Mm, because they're they terrified don't, they don't that, own it. Yeah, yeah. No, they're terrified that people are going to think of them as a guy who does these things. They're not. And they may have some shame about what they did. Um but it is so often just overshadowed by this like grip of fear about the world thinking that they're a rapist and or a, you know, whatever. Mm. And, you know, I, I really think that they could direct a lot more of that energy to like thinking about how all of this has impacted and is impacting the person who they hurt rather than how it's impacting them. Sure. And often, I mean, from the from the mental health angle it's kind of cliche, but it's hurt people who hurt people. Very sure. often people have men uh, have been abused or traumatized themselves, especially as young kids. This is especially the case for for domestic abuse, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, the majority of people who witness or, or you know, who, who have violence in their childhood home don't go on to use violence. But the vast majority of people who use violence in adulthood did either experience or witness violence right. in their childhood home, for sure. And then especially men being as... Uh, in the masculine culture that they're raised in, not being able to actually talk about that or open up about it, or maybe they don't even remember it, but it's obviously influenced them. Uh, Yeah, totally. I think people internalize those things uh, in ways that are designed when they're children to like protect themselves from it, you know? And sometimes that means walling it off completely, especially if you're a guy who like, if you ever express any emotion that isn't anger or joy, you're like, you know, a pussy or whatever. Yeah. yeah. I love this idea in uh, dialectical behavior therapy uh, of acceptance and change, mm. that you can accept something. That doesn't mean you condone it. It doesn't mean you approve of it or anything like that. You just accept that it is what it is. You did this or this happened to you or whatever it is. It yeah. just is what it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then only from there can you change. Yeah. And that if you're running from what actually happened or what you did or what you believe or whatever, you'll never change. No, it's totally true. Yeah. I think, um, you know, that kind of reminds me of um, I uh, right kind of in the immediate aftermath of the verdict in my trial. Um, uh, another woman who had been a very high profile, like much more so than me, um, victim of like online misogynist uh, mobs 
she reached out to me and um, I was talking about how I keep like waiting for the moment when my life is going to go back to normal. Mm. And uh, and she she was just like, you know, things got a lot easier for me when I accepted that what has happened is a part of my life now, you know, the new normal. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that it's going to be like that forever, but the fact of the matter is that this happened and that this is going to like transform you in some way. Of course, it's like a monumental life experience. It's going to impact you. And, um, and, and rather than trying to get back to the way that things were, you know, it's better to like integrate Mm. this reality into you know, your narrative of, of your life. Sure, yeah. yeah. Use it. Do something with it. Mm-hmm. You know, make, yeah. make something good with it. Yeah, that's what I'm working on. It sounds like that's what you've been working on all your life. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Which is incredible because you've had such an influence on on the world and on peers. And, you know, what, what would you say now to... Uh, we talked a little bit about this. So, so young women who are just starting to come in and wanting to do what you do, uh, what would you tell them? Oh, you know, um, I guess I would, uh, I would just encourage them to not feel like they have to be strong and tough all the time and not feel like they have to constantly be putting themselves out there. You know, one of the things that I have found really challenging about, especially like the current state of the conversation around how feminists should like should deal with with this climate of, um, you know, escalating extreme misogyny and uh, particularly online. A lot of the discourse, including from like and primarily from feminists, is like, um, oh, well, we, we can't back down and we have to just keep speaking. And, you know, like I've heard people throw around an Audre Lorde quote that is often being thrown around in a very decontextualized way that your silence will not protect you. And this is used as a kind of motivation to like, well, you know, uh, you've got to just keep at it and keep speaking up. And I I have to say that pisses me off. Like, I'm sorry, but speaking up can be very dangerous. I think there's a lot of pressure on young feminists and activists of all stripes to uh, to not to not let the bastards get you down, quote unquote. Mm. I think you're just running from reality if you in, insist on like sometimes they are going to get you down yeah, <laughs> sometimes the sure. bastards get you down and yeah, well resilience isn't about staying up all the time that's it resilience you have to give yourself you space to right. to you know i mean i'm like right now i'm working on a script for um a horror film that's actually about my it's about my trial it's about my rape it's about my abusive ex. It's about all of that. And it kind of rolls it into one story that has been the result of the over the last year, I've done a ton of personal writing and I haven't been sharing it for the Mm -hmm. most part. I've shared excerpts here and there. I've shared some experts or experts, um, excerpts on, you know, Instagram or what have you. Mm -hmm. Um, but that writing has mostly been for me and it's been a space for me to like connect the dots between my different experiences. And in fact, I've found connections between some of these experiences that I was not even aware of prior to beginning the writing process. Like, for example, um, during my trial, the whole situation with the face punch video game guy got brought up in the trial, even though he was not the defendant. Mm. Um, But, uh, you know, there I don't even know if he actually had tried to kill himself or if it was um, just a hypothetical, but there was this like, well, if he had tried to kill himself, if he had killed himself, how would you have felt? Because, you know, the implication being that it would have been my fault if he had killed himself. Um, And like, guess what? My abusive ex-boyfriend, one of his biggest tactics was to threaten self-harm or threaten to kill himself and say that it was my fault. It was Mm. because of my behavior. Mm. Right. So I had not 
connected those dots. But through this personal writing that was very much for me and not focused on sharing with the world, Mm -hmm. but just focused on like what has happened to me and how has it impacted me and fuck everyone else for a little while. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I don't think I would have gotten to this horror script if I hadn't like spent this time really focusing inward. So I don't think we always have to speak up or maybe sometimes speaking up is something that we just do to ourselves, with ourselves. Well, I'm so glad that you're still speaking up on Facebook, at least, even if not on Twitter, because <laughs> I've I've uh, learned more from you, I think, over the past five years and have been inspired so many times and challenged so many times in a good way, I think, Thank you. Uh, that I'm really grateful. Uh, I feel really privileged to, to know you. That's so kind of you, Mark, and I feel the same. I really value your voice and the work that you're doing, and it's very unique, and I think you're impacting quite a lot of people, so thank you. Thank you. All right, that's it. That's Seth Guthrie. Uh, what a, a powerful person, uh, and especially to be able to open up in her in her own vulnerability about the the stuff that she's been through, the the legal battles, the uh, the film, the all of her activities in the feminist realm. I think her work is is so incredibly important, uh, and I'm I'm really interested to hear your feedback on that. So share the episode on the uh, share the show on social media. Tag us, tag me. Uh, I'm at Mark Hennick at M A R K H E N I. CK on Twitter, on Facebook, on uh, Instagram and LinkedIn and YouTube and everywhere else you could. I'm not hard to find. You can go find me. Uh, Steph Guthrie is also a public speaker. So uh, I think she's still with the National Speakers Bureau, uh, but you can Google her and and check that out. Go to her website, StephGuthrie.com and read more about her. My website is markhenick.com, M-A-R-K-H-E-N-I-C-K.com. You can go over there, uh, markhenick.com slash so-called normal, read more about the show. Uh, I told you at the top, but I'm going to tell you again, subscribe. Go over to Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show. Uh, leave us a rating. But we're also available on Google Podcast, on Spotify, Stitcher, Libsyn, uh, CastBox, wherever else you get your podcasts. So uh, we'll, we'll come to you however you need. Um, so check us out. If you want to try out some free psychotherapy, a free trial of online, safe, effective psychotherapy with credentialed, uh, uh, trained individuals, counselors, psychotherapists, uh, go to betterhelp.com slash Mark, M-A-R-K, enter the promo code Mark, again, M-A-R-K, not M-A-R-C, M-A-R-K, and you can get that free trial of a couple weeks of uh, free online psychotherapy. So go check that out. Hope you enjoyed the show. Share it with your friends. I'm Mark Hennick, and this has been So-Called Normal. Oh,